0: So, I wonder how many of you can remember life before the invention of the SatNav? Um, some of you, like me, there's a, somebody putting their hand up there, <laughs> several hands up. Um, you may remember, of course, that pre SatNav, um, every car had, a, or most cars, had a book of maps in the back pocket, or perhaps uh, an A to Z city map like this one. Um, and if you were lost, then your passenger would whip out the map and try to work out where you are and, uh, and the right direction to go. And that is the point when you would discover that your passenger has no sense of direction and cannot read maps. Cue for a massive in-car argument. Fortunately, these days are, those days are long gone. And, and most of us, if not all of us, have sat-navs in our cars and on our phones. The best known is, of course, Google Maps, which even tells you how to avoid real-time traffic jams, something these old paper maps never could do. No arguing with your passenger now. You can just let Google do all the, the heavy lifting and the worrying about how to get you safely from A to B. And Google even tells you if a quicker route is available. Up pops that wonderful message, Faster route, now available, save six minutes. Now, when that comes up, I do always wonder, how do they know that there is a faster route? Has someone just built a new road? Has some boffin in Google HQ just passed his or her GCSE in geography and worked out a better route? But either way, you don't think twice, you click the reroute button, and suddenly you've saved six minutes of your life, hopefully. I'm equally sure that Google Maps has saved many a marriage. The early Christians faced a similar map-reading dilemma. Which way should they go? They had the original map, the original A to Z, if you like. That was the historic teaching of the apostles, the truth about Jesus, the Son of God, the truth about sin and forgiveness and how to be reconciled with God through the blood of Christ. But now there were false teachers, false prophets, people who were originally in the church and they were teaching a false gospel that denied who Jesus was. In effect, they were saying, faster route, now available. Follow this better route, not the one you originally set out on. This new work route is trustworthy. It's better. Click the reroute button now. The sad reality is that we face the same challenge in our church today. There are people, even within the church, who want to depart from the historic teaching of the apostles. We have our A to Z. And it's called the Bible. This is the right way to go. And yet false prophets are popping up everywhere and saying, faster route, now available. There's a better route. Ignore the teaching of the apostles, they say, because this is a better way, a 21st century way, a relevant way, a more accessible way, an easier way. It's so tempting isn't it? To go with the flow and press the reroute button. But the problem is that unlike Google Maps, this new route will not lead us to the destination that we want to go to. Instead, it will lead us and the whole church, if we're not careful, out of the light into the darkness. This morning, as Phil said, we are continuing our sermon series focused on our core values here at St. Mary's, and we've already had a brief look at each one of them. Nurturing biblical faith, offering gospel hope, and showing Christ-like love. We learned a few weeks ago that the basis of our biblical faith is our understanding of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for us. So, This is all about Jesus. But note that our core value is not just to have a biblical faith, but to nurture it in ourselves and in others. The dictionary definition of nurture is to feed and to protect. Some of you saw me with my grandson, Owen, last week. He is making good progress, so thank you, for your prayers for him but to grow and to flourish he needs to be fed and to be protected by his parents and by his grandpa when he's in charge he needs to be nurtured and so it is with our faith the faith revealed to us by the apostles in scripture we need to feed and to protect it but how do we do that What does it mean in practice? Well, that is the very issue that John is dealing with and addressing in our Bible reading this morning from 1 John, chapter 2. Remember, John is writing to a young church that is riven with division, assailed by these false teachers who have split away from the congregation. And John, in his letter, makes clear in simple, binary terms how to distinguish false teaching from gospel truth it's about light versus darkness obedience versus disobedience love versus hate god-centeredness versus world-centeredness and in our passage this morning john reinforces this message with three words a word of warning a word of reassurance and a word of instruction, a word of warning, a word of reassurance, and a word of instruction. First of all, the word of warning, and that is that there are many antichrists in the world. Just look at verse 18. Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the antichrist is coming, even now many antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. Now, at first glance, this is a pretty scary verse, isn't it? Last hour, antichrists. It conjures up pictures of the apocalypse, the end times, horror movies, scary villains with bright red eyes, Dan Brown books and the like. But all John means when he refers to the last hour is that we're now in that last period of history between the coming of Jesus, the incarnation his death and resurrection, and the pouring of his Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and his return in glory. We're in those last days, that last hour. The writer to the Hebrews says something very similar. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. So in the grand scheme of time, we are in the last days, the last hour, so to speak. And there will, in the very last days, just before Jesus returns, be an Antichrist, capital A. Someone whom Paul describes in his letter to the Thessalonians as the man of lawlessness. But that is in the future. But we should not be complacent, because as John writes here, even until that point, there are many antichrists, little a, many antichrists, people who are, as it says on the tin, Christ, People who oppose the Jesus Christ who was revealed to us through the apostolic witness in scripture. This may seem rather harsh, but take the Jehovah's Witnesses who stand by the war memorial in Cheshire. Maybe you've seen them. On a Saturday morning, I am sure that they are lovely people. But because they deny the divinity and the sonship of Jesus, they are, in this literal biblical sense, anti Christs. In fact, John says as much. Just look at verse 22 Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist. Denying the Father and the Son. In fact, John goes on. Look at the next verse, verse 23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. You could not have a clearer, more unambiguous statement that the only way to God the Father, the only way, is through his Son, Jesus. Now, this is in our modern age a challenging truth, isn't it? Not only for the Jehovah's Witnesses who stand by the war memorial in Chesham, but for our Muslim and our Jewish friends who would deny that Jesus is the Son of God. But John is clear. Anyone who denies this, however nice, however pleasant, however well-meaning, is in the sense used by John an anti-Christ. So John is saying He is warning that as we get nearer to Jesus' return in glory, opposition to Jesus will increase. There will be many antichrists. There are many antichrists in our world today. And we know this to be true, don't we? As we see opposition to biblical Christianity increase. So we need to nurture our biblical faith to feed it and protect it against these antichrists, against untruth, against people who would deny that Jesus is the Son of God, who would deny who Jesus really is. Otherwise, we risk being sent down the wrong route, the route that leads to darkness instead of light. That message will come up faster route now available and it will be so tempting, won't it, just to click that reroute button and accept it. We need to resist that temptation. So John gives us a sobering warning and a timely one, I think, for the church today. But then John comes up with a word of reassurance and that is about our anointing by the Holy Spirit. Just look at verse 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. And again, the first part of verse 27. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. The Greek word used for anointing here is chrisma, which means to anoint someone with oil. It's the same root as the word Christ, the anointed one. So in a way, John is making a very clever play on words. He's saying, you faithful believers, you faithful remnant who have remained committed to the apostolic truth, you have been Christed by Christ. You've been anointed by the anointed one. You've been made into a holy people by the holy one. You've been made into a royal priesthood by our great high priest. In the Old Testament, kings like David and priests like Aaron were literally anointed with oil. But now our anointing, like Jesus's in the Gospels, is not with oil but with water at baptism and with the Holy Spirit whom God pours out onto us as an act of grace. A Holy Spirit whom Jesus himself called the Spirit of Truth. In John's Gospel, Jesus tells his disciples, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. So here in his letter, John is simply confirming what Jesus himself promised, an anointing by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, who will lead us into all truth, who will point us, to the true Jesus, because that is what the Holy Spirit always does, point to Jesus. So in one sense, as John writes here, look at verse 27, we don't really need teachers. We don't really need Phil or Edward or me, in a sense, because the Holy Spirit will guide us. Now, of course, elsewhere in Scripture, There is a role for teachers. They're one of the the, the key roles within the church, 1 Corinthians 12. And this letter from John is itself a teaching letter. But John's key point here is that if we have the Holy Spirit, then he will steer us away from all untruth, from all false teachings, and lead us towards the truth. That is the wonderful reassurance of his anointing that we have here in 1 John chapter 2. So, John gives us a word of warning about many antichrists. He gives us a word of reassurance about our anointing by the Holy Spirit. But thirdly and finally, he gets practical. And he gives us a word of instruction. And that is simply to abide. Abide in the word and abide in Christ. There are only two imperatives or commands in this short passage in 1 John chapter 2. The first is uh, verse 24, just look at that. As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. We are to ensure that what we have heard from the beginning, the apostolic witness revealed in Scripture, this God's word must remain and abide within us. And then the second imperative in verse 27, second half of verse 27. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. We are to abide or remain in Christ through the indwelling presence of his Holy Spirit. The Greek word used for abide or or remain in some translations, as it is here in 1 John, has the meaning of making a settled home or taking up a permanent residence. In other words, to avoid going down the wrong route, we need to make a settled home in God's word. We need to make a permanent address in Christ, or rather allow him to take a permanent address in us by his Holy Spirit. As Jesus told his disciples, John chapter 15 and verse 4, remain in me as I also remain in you. As Paul puts it to the Ephesians, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he the Father, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. We need to abide in Christ and have him abide in us. Okay, you say, Jeremy, that's fine, but what does it mean in practice? How do we abide both in God's word and in Christ by his spirit? Well, we abide in God's word, in the Bible, in our A to Z, our original plan, by soaking ourselves in it, by reading the Bible and studying it daily, by following a Bible reading plan. By perhaps joining a small group to study scripture in more detail. By making a conscious decision to get to know God's word better. And it does need to be a conscious decision because it will not happen on its own. So if you're not, Phil won't thank me for this because he's already organized them, but if if you're not yet in a small group, why not join one? Speak to Phil, it's not too late. If you'd like to find out more about daily devotional emails or how to start a bible reading plan then speak to anyone in the ministry team phil edward or myself the 19th century evangelist george muller once wrote this the vigor of our spiritual life will be in exact proportion to the place held by the bible in our life and thoughts maybe we're feeling spiritually dry right now But maybe that is because we have not been immersing ourselves enough in God's word. And it is important because we need to know the right direction to go. We need to know how to counter these false teachings of the Antichrist in our our world today. How to resist that flashing sign, faster route, now available. So that is abiding in the word. What about abiding in Christ and Christ abiding in us? Well, I can't put it any better than another 19th century Christian, the Bishop J.C. Ryle, who wrote this, to abide in Christ means to keep up a habit of constant close communion with him, to be always leaning on him, resting on him, pouring out our hearts to him and using him as our fountain of life and strength, as our chief companion and best friend. This deeply intimate relationship with jesus must be at the very heart of our christian faith and if you're here in church this morning or you're watching online and you don't yet have that intimate personal relationship with jesus then we would love just to help you to get that started because abiding in christ and being rooted in his word which points to christ these are the ways that we truly nurture feed and protect our biblical faith. So, a word of warning about antichrists in the world. A word of reassurance about our anointing by God's Holy Spirit. A word of instruction about abiding in the word and abiding in Christ. That is the way we hold on to the faith that has been revealed to us through the apostolic witness. That is the way we nurture our biblical faith, the way we feed and protect it. Let's, as a church, let's, as St Mary's, let's, as individuals, stick faithfully to the way that we have been shown and not get lured down some spiritual cul-de-sac that leads only to darkness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we're not left alone to fend our way, to find our way through the darkness to the light. You have given us your word in scripture, the apostolic witness. You have given us Christ who died for us. You have blessed us with your Holy Spirit. Help us day by day to abide in your word, to abide in Christ by the Holy Spirit. Lord, that we might know the way.